At Philippians 1, verse 9, we read, And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in knowledge and in all discernment, that you may approve the things that are excellent, that you may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ, being filled with the fruits of righteousness which are by Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Lord, this morning we, we long for your love. We long that your love would supernaturally abound in our hearts and in our minds and that your love would overflow our hearts and be poured out into the lives of those around us. Lord, it is our desire that you would be glorified through this love, that we would not fall prey to the false misconceptions of love that this world offers us, but instead we would cling to you, we would cling to your cross, we would cling to, to you who has displayed what real love is. And we ask that your love would reign in us, that your love would guide us in every decision we make in life. Father, as we look at your word and examine your word this morning, would you guide my tongue so that these words would be honoring to you, that these words would, by the power of your spirit, fall upon open and receptive hearts, that we might be transformed more and more into your image through them. We love you, Lord, and we pray this all in Jesus' holy name. Amen. As about uh, about 15 years ago, that I was called into first called into full time ministry. I was I'd already been working in teaching, and I'd already been working in, for a missions organization for a while. And and Kevin was the youth pastor at the church we were at at the time, and and I was working for Safe Harbor and. He came and asked if I would be interested in teaching the junior high ministry, and, and I gladly accepted and, and dove into it head first, excited uh, to be a part of a regular teaching ministry. And not long after I had started in this, I had read that it would be a good idea to maybe develop a mission statement for the ministry that I was leading, and that would help, you know, kind of lead things and guide things as I was making decisions and, and moving forward in ministry. And, and so as I looked at that, I thought about it and thought clearly about it and decided that I wanted to do this. And so I spent a couple of days really praying and, and meditating on what I would want as a mission statement for the junior high ministry. And as I did, I came up with this. I said, it is our mission to pursue what is best for ourselves and what is best for others by knowing God truly, by loving Him supremely, and by worshiping Him passionately. I tell you this story because of two reasons. One, much of what I wrote as I was developing that mission statement um, came out of the text that I just read. It came out of these words in, in uh, verse 10 where we read that, you may approve the things that are excellent. That you may approve, that you might agree with, that you might pursue and discern what is best in life. What is the very best thing for you, for others, 
to bring glory to God. The second reason that I wanted to look at this text this morning is that I find in a lot of prayer requests, a lot of times of just interacting with other believers and counseling and things like that, the question comes up of, of what is the best thing? You know, I want what is best for my life. I want what is best for my family's life. I want what is best for those around me. But, but sometimes I get confused as to what the very best thing is. You know, some things look good over here and this thing looks good. But what is the best thing? And so this morning I wanted to spend time asking that question. How do I know what is best? How do I know what's best for me? And how do I know what's best for those around me? And as we develop this, we see this in Paul's writings here to the church at Philippi. He starts off, and I'll back up and read the first part because I really like this. In verse 3, he says, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, making requests for you all with joy, for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this very thing that he who begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Just as it is right for me to think this of you all, because I have you in my heart, inasmuch as both in my chains and in the defense uh, and in confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers with me of grace." For God is my witness, how greatly I long for you with all the affection of Jesus Christ. This is a, this is a wonderful opening to the letter and, and really a wonderful precursor to the prayer that he is about to share with the church there because Paul here, as he's opening his writings to the church, he wants to remind them of the thankful memories that he has about them and the ministry that they've done with each other. And now as, they has, as Paul is sitting in prison, they've, they've sent him gifts to continue to encourage him to preach the gospel, to move forward in the ministry that, that God has called him to. And, and he's thankful as he thinks about all that, that God has done in him with the believers at Philippi. And, and as he brings up these think, thankful memories, he's... he's filled with the supreme confidence of what God is doing in him, but also in what God is doing in the church there. That he has started something remarkable, and, and even though you know, hostility might be entering into the church from those outside of them, he's, he's thankful that they continue to cling to each other and to cling to Christ and to cling to his gospel. And he's confident that what God has started, he's going to be faithful to complete it. And then right before his prayer, he reminds them of his deep and abiding affection for them. How much he truly does love them and care for them and wants the best for them. And because of all of these things, all of this, it it sparks this, this joyous prayer that he has for the church there. This prayer that he can't hold inside of them. He wants them to know, this is how I pray for you. He says, and this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in the knowledge and in all 
discernment. Let me start off by saying when, you, when I listen to these words, when I, when I meditate upon this, it is very humbling for me. It's humbling for me because I look at this and I, and I have to ask myself, is, is this how I think of others? When, when I think of all of us in this church, when, when I contemplate the, the people that I know well and others that, that I know not as well, but, but I've gotten to know and I care about, is, is this how I think? Is, is, is there a deep affection inside of my heart for you that draws me to a place of prayer again and again? Do I look and see the work that God is doing in the hearts of the believers at Reverence Bible Church? And, and do I get filled with supreme confidence of what God is doing as I'm thankful for Him and His guiding hand upon our church? Does, does this consume me the way that it consumed Paul? And then when I lift others up in prayer, is this how I pray? It's good to pray for supplications and needs and and things that are going on in our lives and for health and things like that. But predominantly, do I, when I think of you, pray along these lines that the love of of God would abound in our hearts more and more with all discernment, with all knowledge and wisdom. Is this how we pray for each other? Is this how we feel for each other? Because this is how Paul prayed. This is how he felt as he was inspired and empowered by the Holy Spirit. For Paul, he can see that the love of God and others was growing in the church at Philippi. But his pastor's heart cried out for further growth for abounding growth, for, for, for love that would be supernatural, that would be limitless, that would be literally divine agape love. This is what he would be praying, or this is what he was praying for. And he was praying for this because he didn't want them to be confused by worldly love. He isn't looking for some shapeless, sentimental love that the world holds on to, that especially the culture that we live in, how, it's, how it interprets love. This, this sentimental affection that, that, that reaches out, but it's maybe only barely deep enough for anybody to stick a toe in. Uh, I, I was looking at my computer last night, and I was just looking for, for sayings of how the world might interpret love. And you know, I, I typed it in, and it, all these posters popped up on my computer screen. And, and one of them said, love means that two people sitting on a bench will sit close to each other, even though there's plenty of space. It's, this is how the world thinks of love. It's just feelings. It's, it's all we need is love. Love. Love is all we need. It, and that's where it ends. You should be thankful I didn't sing it because I was thinking I was going to sing it out loud. I decided to just wrap it. But this is, this is how we talk about love. It's, you know, it's a yo-yo. Your love is like, our love is like a yo-yo. It goes away, but it just keeps coming back. And doesn't that make you feel good? And that's, that's where it goes. That's where it ends. Because the world doesn't really know how to interpret love. And when Paul thinks about love and when he wants love to abound to the, in the church, it's something so much more than that. It is a 
supernatural, divine love. When, when Paul thinks of love, he thinks of Christ. He thinks of a love that is marked by sacrifice. He thinks of a love that says, I'm willing to lay down my life for you in whatever is best for you, in whatever way that points us back to our loving Savior. I'll lay down everything for you because that's what Jesus did for me. Love takes shape in Christ. It it conforms to God. And when I say that, what I mean is that love is obedient. Jesus said, if you love me, you will obey me. It's not sentimental. It's filled with choices and decisions that says, I will give you my all. I will follow the command of Christ and I will be committed to you to the very end, no matter what. I say this in premarital counseling all the time. Christ-like love says, I'm all in with both feet. I'm not looking for the way out. I'm not giving myself an excuse. I follow after 1 Corinthians 13 that says love endures all things. It never fails. This is the love that he is seeking that the church would abound more and more in. And this is a type of otherworldly love that is the best thing for us and it's the best thing for those around us as well. This is the love that the apostle says is based on knowledge and on discernment. It's based, it's, it has its foundation in knowledge and discernment. And I love that <clears throat> that Paul does this. He, he, takes, he takes love and, he, and knowledge and he, and he throws them together. We don't often do that. Oftentimes we think of, you know, love is for the heart, knowledge is for the mind. You know, we think and we interpret others as that's a person who's kind of led by their emotions. You know, they're just this loving person whose their heart just overflows. And, and that person over there, they're more intellectual. They're more logical. They're more, they're more thinking and how they interpret the world around them. And Paul says, no. When it comes to Jesus, when it comes to the gospel, love and knowledge come together. They are bound together. If you are to truly understand what God is calling us to, we must think of them both together because it is clear from Scripture that there is no real love without true knowledge. There is no true knowledge without love. D.A. Carson, this just popped in my mind, hopefully I say it right, but D.A. Carson, he, he writes that, that love without knowledge is vanity, and knowledge without love is hypocrisy. Without the two of them being combined, we're not really knowing what is best and what is best for others and what will really bring glory to God in our lives. They must work together. And we must ask the question of, well, what is knowledge then? What is the knowledge that he is talking about here? And I think the knowledge is linked directly to the gospel. When he talks about agape love, 
committed, unending, unflinching love that is unconditional. It's not conditioned on what other people do for you. It's conditioned on what Christ has done for you. When he's talking about that type of supernatural love, obviously it's pointing towards Christ, so then the knowledge must also point towards Christ. It must, this knowledge that he's talking about must draw our attention to what Jesus has done. And again, we won't know love if we don't know Jesus and what his love is. How he sacrificially came down to this earth. He, he laid aside the robes of glory that he had from eternity past. What I could quote to you here from Philippians 2, 5-11. through 11. We went there, but I'll just paraphrase. He, he laid aside those robes of glory that he had from eternity past. He became obedient, even obedient to death on the cross. He laid down his life for us that we might have life in him. He rose again from the dead and he ascended to the right hand of the Father to let us know, I have a plan for you and my plan goes beyond what's for today or tomorrow or next week. It's for all of eternity because that's how I think about you. And when we know him in that way, we will love better. One grows out of the other. This knowledge isn't just about knowing things about God either. It's just not simple head knowledge. It stretches so far beyond that. The word itself, epigenosko in the, in the Greek, is, is this experiential knowledge that says, I know it in my head, but I, I, I experience it in my everyday life. When, when he says, I want you to love, and I want you to love in all knowledge and discernment. He's saying, I want you to so experience Christ that his love just flows out of you. And this is important for us to remember. We spend a lot of time studying scripture on Sunday mornings and in community groups. And when we get together and we go through discipleship with one another and in youth group and in women's ministry and men's ministry, we spend a lot of time just studying and pouring over God's Word. But if we don't have His Word pour into our hearts and then look for ways to experience the truth that we see in His Word, we're not really knowing Him the way that Scripture says we should know Him. When we get to know Him, we should be praying, God, help me to not just know You in my head. Help me to know You in my heart and in my life. Help that, this knowledge to be applied to me and to be poured out into others. Because that's what he means. When Paul talks about knowledge, he is talking about something very powerful. As one book defines knowledge, it says... That is, it is the very powerful influences that form religious life. A knowledge laying claim to personal involvement. That's what knowledge is here. So the conclusion is clear. Anyone who claims to love, but who does not do it in accordance with Scripture, does not love as a Christian. He does not love like Christ And for Paul and for us, Christ-like love and Christ-like knowledge must go together in a beautiful circle. And, and I'm sure many of us have been there, but for those of us who haven't, 
as you grow in your knowledge of Christ and his love fills your heart and it pours out into others and then you experience that in a community, whether in your family or in this church, you grow more in love with him. And as that happens, you want to know more about him and it just becomes this beautiful circle that you want to live in day after day. This is what Paul wants for the church. This is why he again prays in Ephesians 3. He says, May you be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. He says, I pray that you would comprehend the love of God that you might be filled with him, that you might experience Christ on a day-in and day-out basis. Now, this is where we get to our main point for this morning, and that is the love and knowledge, that love and knowledge, they're never, they're never the finish line in a Christian's life. We don't just come to the place of, I know what love is and, and I, I experience it in my own heart and, and then I just sit in my room with my prayer journal and, and my Bible and I read and I, and I just dwell and, and meditate upon God's love and my heart is filled and I feel so good and, and I just love being in that place. That isn't the finish line because that's not where Paul is going. He wants to go beyond that. He goes on in verse 10, and he says, that you may approve the things that are excellent. I know this isn't where he ends, because he says, that you, so that, hinna, I I want you to abound in love in all knowledge and and, and discernment for this reason, for the reason of you approving what is excellent, knowing and agreeing with what are the very best things in life. This is what he is after. He wants us as believers to approve. Now, that, that word approve, in the, in the NIV, it actually uh, interprets it as discern. So that you might discern what is best. This is what Paul wants. He wants us to look and see and interpret it and understand and agree with this is what the very best thing in life is. As his love flows into my heart through knowledge and discernment, it pours into me and it flows out and all can see what is the very best in life. We see this in uh, Romans 12. If you want to turn with there, I could just read it to you. We see this word popping up again, approve. In Romans 12 at verse 1, Paul again, he says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable, which is your reasonable service or reasonable act of worship. There's two different words for worship. One of them is linked to adoration, what we sing with our mouths. The other one is what is linked to action, how we act out our lives. So he says, this is your reasonable act of worship in life. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove 
what is good and acceptable and the perfect will of God. Paul's words here are clear that a renewed mind, the renewed mind of a believer is marked by our approval of finding joy in God's good and acceptable and excellent will. When we approve, when we discern what is best, it's like we're saying to ourselves and to those around us, this is what's best. He is what's best. He is good and I'm going to lay everything down for him because I want him. I want what is best in my life. I want to embrace him with all that's within me. And I want to hold nothing back from those around you because this lifestyle is a lifestyle of worship before you. And then Paul goes on and he, and he lays down all of these resolutions for the Christian life based on this truth of what is best. He gets to verse 9 and he says, Let your love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. Again, you can see this is not a shapeless type of love. This is a love that is based on the righteousness of Christ. It comes from a renewed mind. And a renewed renewed mind is not filled with hypocrisy. It hates what is evil. It clings to what is good. And we all know a lot about hypocritical love, unfortunately. I dare say every person in this room in one way or another has been hurt by hypocritical love, by a person who comes to you and says, I love you with their mouth. And their actions say, I love me and I love what you give me. My love for you isn't actually about you. It's about me. And we're hurt by that because that's not real love. We know it intrinsically. We know false love that is filled with selfish desires. I think of John 6. If you remember, Jesus has just walked across the, the lake, across the sea, and he comes to the other side and all these people are following him. And they come up to him and they're patting him on the back and they're telling him how great he is. But there's a reason why they're adoring him with adulation and and telling him how much they love him because the day before, he filled everybody's stomachs. He took the bread, he took the fish, and he filled them all up and then he taught them and he sent them away and then he walks across the sea and he comes to the other side and they follow him over there and they're like, dude, you are the greatest. You're so awesome. We love you. Remember that thing you did yesterday when you fed us all? Can you do that again? Because we really, really care about you as long as you keep doing what we want. That was evident. Because when he taught them and started to explain to them, if you want anything to do with me, you're going to have to eat of my flesh and drink of my blood. In other words, you're going to have to believe in me. And they went, ew, we're out of here. You're not going to give us what we want. If you're just going to keep rambling on about this eating your flesh and drinking your blood, forget that. We love you as long as you give us what we want. That is love with hypocrisy. It doesn't abhor evil. It doesn't cling to what is good. It's selfishly motivated. It's what the world understands love to be. I will love you 
as long as everything works out for me in the end. And as soon as it doesn't, I'll go find somebody else to love. God, on the other hand, has called believers to not be like the world, to have our minds renewed so that we may approve and pursue what is the very best for us and for those around us by loving them with a Christ-like love. Let me add to this that if you are struggling with abounding in love and knowledge, then I guarantee that you are also struggling with discerning what is best. If your understanding of God's love is very small, whether you're just immature in the faith or you just haven't sought to be discipled or you just don't really spend time getting to know Him, I guarantee you, you are struggling with understanding what is the very best for you and for those around you in the workplace in your marriages, in your family, in this church. You're struggling with interpreting life through the me filter that asks not what about you, but what about me? And you look at things, this is the best because it's the best for me. And I don't really care if it's the best for you because really I want, what I want is the best for me. And you're struggling with that. God's wisdom calls us to look clearly into the face of Christ and pray and get to know him and start to ask, how can I love in the same way that I've been loved? And let me live that out. And I promise you, many of the decisions that you make in life will become clearer the more clearly you see Christ. It won't be as hard to say, you know, Should I move here? Should I live there? Should I take this job or go in this direction? And how should I interact with my kids when they're disrespectful to me? And and how should I love my spouse when they're not really caring for me anymore? It'll become clearer. Those decisions become clear when our vision of Christ becomes clear, when we live quorum Deo before the face of God. Things clear up rapidly. So at this point, we may begin to wonder, so how do I know what the best thing is specifically? This is really where the rubber meets the road in how we make decisions. And Paul doesn't completely leave us to, his own, to our own. Uh, he, he doesn't exactly like give us a step-by-step, like, okay, this is how you handle kids in this situation. When this happens and and they're on Facebook too much, or they're on Snapchat, and we don't know what's going on in their lives, or when your spouse does this or says this exact sentence to you, this is how you respond. He doesn't give us that. But he does give us something very clear. As we go on into verse 11, he says again, I'll read it in uh, in Philippians 1. I've turned back there. Uh, He says, I'm sorry, the second half of B, that you may be sincere and without offense Till the day of Christ, being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. This is really the line on which we walk when we're trying to figure out what is best. Where should our minds go as we are cemented in our knowledge of the gospel? 
when His love has filled our hearts and it's overflowing into other people's lives, and now when we walk out the door and we begin to interact with others, Paul's conclusion is that knowing what is best isn't merely an intellectual exercise. It's going to involve every bit of your life. It's going to affect you emotionally, spiritually, physically. It is going to take a total and complete transformation that says, I will seek what's best by focusing on Christ's return. I'm going to seek what's best by focusing my mind on Christ's return. I say that because what does he say? So that you may be sincere without offense until the day of Christ. He means specifically until he returns. How does that work? I'm going to give you a little spoiler. If you haven't spent a whole lot of time studying Scripture yet, I'll give, here's a spoiler alert like in those movie reviews. Be careful what you read right now because I'm going to tell you how the story ends and I don't want to ruin the movie for you. Well, I'm going to ruin how everything ends for you at this point, only I'm not going to ruin it because how it all ends is Jesus wins in the end. He wins. When we look at Scripture, Old Testament and New Testament, what is God screaming at His people over and over again? You may begin to struggle with your faith. You may begin to struggle with clinging to the righteousness that I've led you in. And as you do, don't forget, I win in the end. I win. My righteousness prevails. I will return and I will do away with sin and death forever and ever. So when you're making decisions for your life and you're struggling for what is best, align yourself with me because in the end, I win. Don't forget me. Get to know me so that you know what side you're on so that those selfish desires, when they slam into your face and you're like, I don't know what to do, but this just feels so good and it feels so right and it's going to make me happy right now. Now, Jesus says, don't forget that I win. Abound in love with all knowledge and discernment so that you might walk in righteousness, never forgetting that I win in the end. And if you go in that direction of short-term temporary pleasure, you're putting yourself at war with me. And I win. So cling to me. I don't know how practical this sounds to you right now in this moment, but the next time you're faced with a decision, and I don't mean a big decision, I'm talking about a little tiny decision in your life, how you are going to interact with your spouse when you get home. You guys are going to lunch after we finish. How you respond to your kids. How you respond to your coworkers. Those little tiny things, those, those little words that come out of your mouth. Think about how do I align myself with Christ right now in what I'm going to say and how I'm going to think and how I'm going to interpret this relationship or this situation? How do I align myself with the one who wins in the end? Because all I want is what he wants and he wins. 
The more you do it, the more you will do it, and the easier decisions become. The more clear your path becomes. Now, I don't mean this is, is, as the end-all, be-all, because sometimes you get two things and they both seem like the best, and we just really need to move forward, choose, move in a direction, and trust that God is bigger than any mistake that we will make. But the heart mindset is, I guess that works together because of love and mind. The heart mindset is, I just want what he wants and I want to be aligned with whatever he has because in the end, he wins. Whether it hurts me right now makes no difference. Whether it destroys the things around me, all this kingdom that I build up for myself, it may crumble before me, but if I'm on the side of him, I know that's the best thing and I will pursue it regardless of what happens today or tomorrow. I will pursue him. I'm going to pursue what's best for me, what's best for the others by pursuing the one who wins in the end. And this is not easy for us to do because everything in your life has been screaming at you since you were born. Be pragmatic. Whatever is best, do that. And what that means is what's best for right now. If it works for you right now, if it gets the job done right now, then do that. And God says, no. Don't be pragmatic. Whatever brings glory to me in eternity, do that, even if it hurts you in the short term. Say the thing that brings glory to me, even though it may temporarily hurt that relationship. Pursue the thing that, pursue me in the job and the direction that you're going, even if it hurts you in the short term. If it brings glory to me, if it aligns you with me, do that thing. Don't think like the world. Think like me. Think in the light of eternity. All times, every day, may that be our pursuit. What's great about this is that God's promises, or God promises that living like this is what is best for us and best for those around us, and that He will walk closely with those who truly pursue what is best in life. We see that all throughout Scripture. When we suffer for righteousness' sake, God says, I will manifest myself more closely to you than you can imagine when you pursue me in those hardest times. Cling to me, and I will walk closely with you. Let me close with one final exhortation. Because this is weighty. This is heavy. This is big. We're talking about every moment of every day living before the face of God in the light of His eternity and making every decision based on that truth. Loving others with true knowledge and discernment and approving what is best in the light of eternity all the time. And let me let you off the hook right now by reminding you that you can't do this You can't. You don't have the ability to do anything that I'm saying in and of yourself. You cannot do any of the stuff that is written in here. None of it. You can only do it through the strength that God provides through His Holy Spirit. This is easily said and quickly forgotten. We all go, yeah, that's absolutely true. I need Christ for everything. And then we're going to walk out the door and we're going to immediately forget it and think, 
okay, what's that thing that I need to do? What's that super important thing that I need to keep pursuing and, and working through and conform my schedule to? And, and I'm going to do this. You're going to see, God, I'm going to honor you in this. And we completely forget, oh, but I can't do this. I need you. I'm completely 100% dependent upon you to do this. Lord, help me to take a step back, remember that, and like Paul, pray. Like Paul, pray. That's why he prays. That's why he says, I pray for you. I thank God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine making requests for you with all joy. Why? Because God's going to do it. He's going to do it. You can't do it on your own. Therefore, I pray that God's love might abound in your hearts to the praise of His glorious grace. Let's remember that and pray. Take a step back in our lives and pray like Paul to Christ because he is our only only hope in actually pursuing what is best for ourselves and what is best for those around us. Let's pray because this is critical. It's critical because the world is watching us. There are non-believers in this room right now, which I am certain there must be at least one or two. They are watching us. They want to see a supernatural divine love that is otherworldly, that isn't about us, but it's about others, about sacrifice, about glory that stretches beyond the mundane existence that we see every single day. They are watching and longing to see something more. So let's pray. Let's pray because our brothers and sisters in Christ are watching us. I'm watching. I need to see the love of Christ being poured into your hearts and out into those around you. That's why I love doing marriage counseling and things like that because I love being encouraged by watching what Christ is doing in others and then I can take that and glean from it and apply it to my life as well. I'm watching. Others in this church are watching and longing to see something more than this world offers us. And most importantly, Jesus Christ is watching. And we want to be pleasing to him. As in Reverence Bible Church, his love abounds more and more with all knowledge and all discernment. So let's do that now together. Let's pray that God would bring glory to himself through our lives and our love for each other. Father God, we... are so blessed by your truth. We're here so blessed to be reminded of the great love with which you have loved us. The great cost that was paid, the price that was paid that we could be a part of your family. We are blessed to be reminded of the great hope or that you win in the end in all of our relationships, and all of our struggling, in, in this nation that we live in, in this world that we reside upon, in the end, we are blessed to be reminded that you win. And we are thankful. And Lord, as we contemplate your love for us, 
and we hear your call for us to love others. Father, we want to start before we do anything else by asking for your help. We are dependent upon you completely to bring glory to your name through our love for others. And we ask, Lord, would you fill us with a supernatural strength that comes from your spirit so that we might abound in love more and more. May your love overflow in our hearts and pour out into others by the power of your spirit all for your glory. May your name be magnified as the outside world looks at this church and sees supernatural, limitless love. We thank you, Lord, for what you have done and what you are doing in this body of believers. And we ask that you would continue to carry it out to completion until the day of the Lord. We pray this all in your name. Amen.